the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to start today talking about the case for impeaching President Trump and why Democrats have been unable to expand support among Americans. What's missing from their message? And could there have been a more convincing approach? Then we're going to talk with former Detroit Red Wing Nicholas Lidstrom about his new memoir and the state of sports here in the city of Detroit. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Right today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. Articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump are now in front of the full U.S. House, which is expected to vote on those articles sometime this week. Since the news about the call to Ukraine surfaced, polling has shown that more Americans support impeachment than oppose it. But after weeks of hearings, Democrats still have not been able to really close the deal with a lot of people. In fact, 538.com's tracker shows that number of people who support impeachment has been slipping slightly. So why is that? And could Democrats have done anything differently to build more support among Americans and maybe put more pressure on Republicans during this impeachment process. This is a question that I have been thinking about an awful lot over the last several weeks. Why is it that Democrats don't seem to be able to convince a vast majority of Americans that President Trump did something wrong in this call to Ukraine and that the level of that violation rises to the issue of impeachment. That's where we want to start the conversation today. And we really want to hear from you. Do you think these proceedings over the last few weeks have done anything to make a case for impeachment against President Trump? Are you still watching these hearings or have you tuned out? And do you think Democrats or Republicans are doing a more effective job making their case? Are Democrats really selling the idea that this is wrong and they must remove the president? Or do you think the Republicans are doing a better job of pushing back against that idea, either because they don't think the president did anything wrong or because they think he did something wrong, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll try to work you into the conversation. And joining me to talk about this subject is somebody I have been following on social media about this subject throughout the process of this impeachment. Ron Fournier is president of the Truscott Rossman PR firm and former publisher of Crane's Detroit Business. He was also the Associated Press Washington bureau chief for many years. Ron Fournier, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. So as I said, I, I follow you on social media and I have My been... apologies. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, but in, the, in recent weeks, you've really been talking a lot about this case against the president and the way that the Democrats have been handling it. And yeah. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you have not been impressed by the way that they have pursued this issue. Yeah, it's, it's a massive missed opportunity. First, I look at this as someone who covered the Clinton impeachment um, as a White House reporter for the AP and as someone now who's a paid uh, communicator. Um, look, you have to look at this, first of all, what is your goal? The goal for the Democrats from the beginning should not have been to ha have him impeached or have him convicted because we know what's going to happen there. It should be about getting him beat in November to do whatever they can to undermine his credibility, his support among the key electorate. That is the small percentage of voters who are going to determine this election, your independents, your swing voters, your suburban voters. So from the very beginning, that should have been the target. And if instead of spending their time with a 1974 media campaign, which is basically let's hold hearings in the middle of the day when most people nowadays are working. Are working and right? paying attention. Um, why not a multi-million a multi dollar 
um, advertising campaign and earned media campaign that starts with a targeted digital ads following people around the internet that starts with paid social uh, media and, and an earned media campaign that is not a bunch of Byzantine process driven hearings in the middle of the day when we're all working, but go to prime time. They go to prime time in a modern way. This president has, has violated the law and violated the, um, the sanctity of our foreign policy in innumerable ways. Let's start with the 10 um, articles of obstruction laid out by Mueller. Let's start with um, um, bribery and extortion with Ukraine. And if every night there was one hour devoted on prime time, a crime of the day, um, that highlighted what he did and why it's harmful to all of us, um, and you back that up with a really aggressive, really expensive, the kind of social media campaign that Trump, by the way, his people are, are, are you know, solidifying his base uh, by doing right now. If we had a modern campaign like that, this is a slam dunk case versus the president that the Democrats right now um, have dropped because they, they're still acting like it's 1974. And they're spending all their time whining about how the mainstream media isn't calling him out instead of themselves getting their act together spending their money and make and telling the story about why he should never be president again. And by the way, it's a very compelling story. Why aren't they telling it? So, so if you look back at other impeachment proceedings, Pew yeah. Research did this recently, and they, they suggest that Americans actually embraced the idea of impeaching Trump, the ones who embrace it at least, faster than they were to embrace the idea of impeaching Richard Nixon during Watergate. Uh, and Bill Clinton's approval rating actually increased at one point during his impeachment ordeal. Right. So here we are in 2019, at the end of 2019, with these proceedings against President Trump. And you have a majority of Americans, according to most polls, who right. say this was wrong and he probably ought to be removed from office. Certainly a plurality, if not a majority. Sure. So the reason for that is two. Um, one is we're a much more polarized country. So a lot of people were against Trump right from the beginning including me. <laughs> um, uh, two, what, what this president has done is so far worse than anything Bill Clinton did, or even Richard Nixon did, that that um, also um, added to his negative value. The problem here is the Democrats haven't built on that. There's not been one person who's been converted from, um, if you look at the polls, from not sure whether to he should be impeached to him being impeached. Um, it's a very easy case to make that what he has done is something that we don't we want no other future president to do. Um, the problem is the Democrats haven't bothered to make that case. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put your comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation. We've already got a lot of folks queued up to talk about this subject. Let's start with Mike in Gross Point. Mike. Welcome to the show. Good morning, team. Hey, uh, good morning. I'm really curious because it seems pretty clear to me that there was obviously somebody who was corrupt in Ukraine, and we've heard that. And Joe Biden worked really hard to get that guy fired. And from all appearances, it looks like we just said, let's get rid of that corrupt SOB so we can put in our own corrupt SOB. And I don't understand why there isn't this understanding that President Trump wanted to make sure we didn't have just more corruption based on Biden's son getting hired for a lot of money for what appeared to be nothing more than connection. Hmm. Well, because that's not what happened, with all due respect. Uh, first, what, what uh, Biden pushing um, against and, uh, the, the, uh, the corrupt prosecutor was something the whole world was doing in a very transparent way. Um, Biden was part of a global move to push out uh, the former prosecutor. What Donald Trump did, um, if you look at the, the, um, the transcript or the partial transcript of the phone call that he put out, and if you look at um, his conversations on live TV, you know, that have been taped and you can look at, this was not about, he's admitted that this was not about getting rid of a prosecutor or, 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 or corruption in general in Ukraine. This was about digging up dirt and influencing his reelection campaign. That is something that is just asking for that help, even without a quid pro quo. Just asking for that help is against the law. And that's not an opinion. It's, it's, it's a fact. So he, he had broke the law just by asking for that help. And then by saying, um, I'll give you the arms you need, um, the, um, but I have to ask you a favor, though. That is um, very close, if not actually, extortion. 
or bribery. I'll give you this if you give me that. That's what quid pro quo translates to in Latin. So with all due respect, sir, that what, you, what you just repeated back to me is what Republicans want you to believe, but it's just not true. And, and I think Mike's point of view and his belief in that point of view is testament to the effectiveness of that Republican message. They have gotten their, they've gotten across to a lot of people that somehow this is not really about Donald Trump and what he did on this phone call, but is about Joe Biden or about Hunter Biden right. and what they were up to. And Hunter Biden should not have been on that board. That is what he, being on that board is part of the swampiness that Donald Trump wanted to get rid of. But it's not, you can't, you, you, it doesn't conflate or mitigate what, what Trump did. I think what this is is a testament to how ineffective the Democrats have been as communicators. And again, I'm just talking about politics here. The, the case is slam dunk versus the, the president. But as a communicator, it offends me that the Democrats have, have not done a better job with their case, which is the truth. They have, they have somehow managed to fumble the truth. And instead of using all of the tools that the 21st century affords them, um, they are relying on uh, daytime hearings and a mainstream media that is no longer a gatekeeper and is no longer trusted. Hmm. They have the ability to go directly to voters. Why haven't they? Why haven't they done that? Yeah. Mike, uh, again, thanks very much for listening and for your call. Let's go to Mildred in East Point. Mildred, welcome to Detroit yeah. today. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here talking about this situation because I do feel this is a crux of our democracy is at um, at the point where we need to make this work mm -hmm. for the sake of democracy and our country. And people who claim to be patriotic just don't see the facts. I'm with your guest saying the facts are the facts. This is what it was. He said it on tape. We need to stop playing. We go low, they go high, or they go low, we go high. We need to stop that. Tell it straight. Catch them when they call Democrats speaking this or that. The point I'm making terribly, I'm sorry to say, no, is it's that okay, <laughs> we need to really just tell it straight and be more direct. Okay, you say that, but the fact is blah, 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 and get right back to them. Not trying to be polite and cordial about stating the case, just get yeah. right to it. No, he did this, and it's not, we don't like him. True, we don't like him, like Pelosi said. We don't like him, but the fact is, this and this and this is wrong. He's got to go for that. Hmm. Not, we are trying to undo what the voters have said. No. The, um, yeah. Mildred, I, I, yeah. I, I appreciate the call and the, and, and the thoughts. Uh, Ron Fournier, uh, talk about whether Democrats are being too polite. Are they being too nice during this process and not being aggressive and, and pointing out, hey, look, this is a very simple, this is a very simple thing to understand. He did these things. This is, this is why they violate uh, his oath of office or the Constitution. And that's why he's got to go. My problem isn't with what they're saying. Um, I don't think the problem is that they're being too polite. Um, my problem is they're not being aggressive enough in how they're saying and where they're saying it. Again, we now have the ability that they can, they can follow um, voters around who are going to be critical to whether or not he wins the election. They can follow them around the Internet and just pop the facts up in front of them with infographics, with short videos. You can show the president um, over and over again on every website I go to as a voter. I should be able to have popped up in front of me him literally breaking the law on live TV. Um, it should be explained to people that asking for help uh, for in your political campaign is against the law just asking for it. How many people know that? The reason most people don't know it is because the Democrats have not run a campaign um, that, that, that uses the tools that we have in the 21st century to persuade and inform people. Instead, they're debating on Twitter about whether or not the press corps is being aggressive enough and whether or not they, are, they, they should be less polite. It's not the tone that's killing them. It's their lack of uh, political and strategic communication savvy. And there's also something to, I think, the way that the president communicates about these things. For instance, he, he, he constantly posts, read the transcripts. This was a perfect conversation. I did nothing wrong. It's a very simple message. And if you haven't actually looked at 
the summary that they release. It's not a transcript. It's actually a, a White exactly. House summary of it. You would see that he's wrong. Right. But I don't know that most people get to that level. I don't know that most well, people ever follow up. And so, Well, that's the problem. The Democrats haven't made sure that they have. They're expecting folks to stay home all day and watch 12-hour hearings that they let the Republicans uh, turn into a farce. Um, instead of just taking the facts and following people around as they live their lives with the facts, you can now do that. They're debating over how strong a New York Times or a Washington Times story is, as if the mainstream matter, media really matters anymore. You now have the ability to target voters with facts. Why aren't Democrats doing that? Why aren't Democrats doing primetime TV um, 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 infomercials? Uh, that give people the facts um, when people are at home and able to watch it. Um, or sent th- to people's emails, right? So you right. watch it on your uh, laptop. The Republicans are doing this. Not only is the president making up lies and, and, and saying it as if it's true, but then he, and, 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 and he's not just being supported by the right-wing media. He's also being supported by digital media. The Republicans are spending tens of millions of dollars to get these lies to people where they live and work. Why aren't Democrats spending tens of millions of dollars to get the truth to people where they live and to work? To counter that message, right. sure. Stop whining and start working is what I keep telling Democrats in Washington. Mm. Stop whining about the media and own the media. If, if you raise a little bit of money and spend a little bit of time, you could make sure Americans understand the facts. Mm. Now, let's go to Daniel in Detroit. Daniel, what's on your yeah. mind? Go ahead. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the Democrats have missed the message. I think they're, they're, they're not stating the facts correctly. You know, he had the proper chance. If he really wanted an investigation on corruption in Ukraine, he had the proper channels through the State Department and other departments that he controls. Mm -hmm. So if he wanted the Bidens investigated, if he wanted um, interference in the election investigated, he could have asked his cabinet members to start working in that direction. He didn't have to go through the back door and then cover it up. And then, you know, we're only getting the redacted uh, version. I don't even think that the full version of the phone call was released, was it? No, we have not. We've not seen a transcript. There is no recording, we don't think. So so from my perspective, the full full transcript could be the smoking gun. Um, John Bolton's testimony could be the smoking gun. If we don't hear from John Bolton during this process Hmm. under oath, then we haven't heard all the facts. Hmm. Okay, uh, Daniel, I appreciate the I appreciate the call and the and the comments. Go ahead, Ron. Well, uh, great comments, Daniel. We already have the smoking gun. We have the summary of the call, um, in which the White House itself confirms that he broke the law and um, um, extorted a favor out of Ukraine. Uh, we have the president on tape breaking the law, um, asking for political help on tape, both from the Russians and Ukraine. We have the smoking guns. The problem is. Um, um, uh, the Democratic Party has not been as effective as the Republican Party at presenting the truth as the Republicans have been about spreading lies. So look at how the caller started out. What if there was a 10-second ad all over the Internet that followed you around that said if the president wanted to investigate um, corruption in Ukraine, here's who could have done it and flash up a picture of an FBI agent. Instead, he sent this joker and flash up a picture of Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> I mean, th- th- there is a great case to be made against the president if the Democrats would get off their butts and make it. Uh, and I wonder what you make of the possibility then uh, of that kind of movement among the public putting more pressure on Republicans. In other words, if Democrats were doing a better job of selling this and were at 60 or 65 percent or 70 percent of the public who believed the president was wrong and should be removed, it would be harder for Mitch McConnell, for instance, to say the things that he's saying about handling this trial as though He's just going to rubber stamp the whole thing and go through the motions and move on to other business. Yeah, this is where it gets nuanced and you have to keep your, your eye on the mission. There's no way, even with a perfect media campaign in this environment, could you get 70, 75 percent of the people against the president. Of course, if you could, McConnell would have to cave. But we're not going to do that because we know how polarized the electorate is. This goes back to what I said at the beginning. The idea isn't to get 75 percent of the people against Trump. The idea is to get four or five percent of the of the uh, swing voters and independent voters who are going to determine this election in Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, um, I'm forgetting the third Pennsylvania. State, Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
Um, you, we only have to move. We, if you, if you, if you think uh, President Trump should not be reelected, a few thousand people in three states. So target the case on those few thousand people, where they live, where they work, and, and give them the information when and where they want it, which is on their phones, is in, in a digital media campaign, uh, complemented by an earned media campaign that is on TV in the evening. It's it's not that difficult. You don't have to change a lot of minds. Only a few. The Republicans are doing that. Mm-hmm. The Democrats aren't. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about how Democrats are handling impeachment. We're going to hear more from you as well. Glenn in the cast quarter, Mike in Chesterfield, Aaron in Detroit, Bernadette in Redford. We will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Ron Fournier, president of the Truscott Rossman PR firm, former publisher of Crane's Detroit Business, and former Associated Press Washington Bureau chief. We're talking about the case that Democrats are trying to make to the American public that President Trump broke the law and should be removed from office. How come they haven't been more successful? Polls have shown since the beginning that about half the people believe that story and believe that that is the consequence that should play out, but they haven't been able to grow that percentage. They haven't been able to get more people to believe that that's true. Why is that? What are they doing wrong? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also Catch up with us on Facebook or on Twitter, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Glenn in the Cast Corridor. Glenn, welcome to the show. Hey. hey. Hi, Stephen. Thanks uh, for taking my call. Sure. I have to say, you were talking about the numbers being flat in terms of changing, in terms of support for impeachment. Mm-hmm. Personally, I, he has got to be impeached and got to be removed from office. He's broken many, many, many laws, too many to go through. But I'm scared to death about this election coming up next year and the impact of the impeachment and of the trial and how that's going to be used by the Republicans and may make it difficult uh, for uh, may make the the second uh, term of of Trump possible. So Hmm. that's that's my anxiety that comes up. And I think a lot of people are feeling that anxiety. The other thing is. We're so uncertain about who our Democratic candidate's going to be. And there's two, you know, two big differences. There's the conservative Democrat and the, the liberal, you know, the far left and the far right Democrat. So there's that issue. So that, that's, that's why I think the numbers have been flat. Hmm. But I have a question. Mm-hmm. This issue about the Democrats not being able to get the message out, like this is not a new issue. We've been hearing this for years and years and years. You mean about the, the Democrats? Republic. The de- pardon? You mean about the Democrats? Yeah, about the Democrats, that they just don't seem to be able to get them the message. The Republicans are always successful at it. Of course, the Republicans have uh, Fox News and their entire organization and all those experts to mm-hmm. actually help them form their message and to get their message out. Why? Why is it? What is it about the Democratic Party? Hmm. And, and I would like Ron to address this. Why is it that they fail so miserably at getting their message out and making it simple? You know, I, I think that's a really great question, Glenn. And and I, I think part of the context for that question is actually the exceptions to that truth, right? So Bill Clinton in 1992 has a very, very simple message that he just absolutely rides into the White House. It's the economy, stupid, right? And he says it against a president who is totally uninterested in the things that Americans are experiencing in their pocketbooks. Uh, President Obama, uh, same idea, hope and change, this idea of yes, we can. Uh, Very simple message that resonates with lots of people. Uh, Hillary Clinton, though, in 2016, I I would struggle to say what the message was of, of, of that campaign. And so I think we have examples on both sides of that equation from Democrats where 
sometimes they're great at messaging and other times they're absolutely atrocious. If I can go deeper, it's not just the messaging, you're exactly right, but it's the tactics you use to get that message to people. So Reagan um, um, won because he figured out TV in a way that Democrats couldn't. Clinton um, not only had the right message, but he figured out that at his time, local media was a lot more powerful than anybody had realized. So they had a huge local media apparatus that got him reelected in 1996. Flash forward to Bush. Bush got reelected because he was the first politician who brought micro-targeting to politics. The Mm -hmm. idea that everything that you bought, this was before the internet really, everything that you bought, all your purchases that could be traced, they could determine what messages uh, would best motivate you to vote. They used that to win states like Michigan in 2004, the first political campaign you do micro-targeting. What did Obama do? Not only did he have hope and change, but he was the first politician to take micro-targeting and overlay Internet um, activity on top of it. So it's not just the message. It's using the modern techniques to get that message to people in a way that they understand it and where they want it. That's what Democrats aren't doing now. You could have the perfect slogan now. Basically, you do. <laughs> Trump should not be president. <laughs> you, know, you have a perfect case, but they're not using the modern tactics to get the message to people. Hmm. That's my big criticism with them. And, and our caller has a legitimate concern that um, uh, Donald Trump could be reelected because of how poorly Democrats are handing, handling the modern tactics of communications. Yeah. Uh, Rhonda on Twitter says the problem with the Democrats is that they're depending on people to make an intellectual assessment when people act out of emotion. This is what the Republicans understand and keep exploiting. Matthew on Twitter says saddest thing to me is we are not debating the facts, but how to sell it to people in order to make them believe it. That is the scariest thing to me. Facts don't matter. When does party over country stop? Uh, Ron, I want to talk a little about the consequences, the potential consequences of this impeachment hearing and inquiry. And if they go ahead and, as we expect, do it this week, a lot of people think that Democrats will pay for that next year at the ballot box. If you go back 20 years, though, Republicans had the same fears about what they were going to do with Bill Clinton. And then in 2000, they won everything, the presidency and both houses of of Congress. So are we making too much of the potential damage that Democrats can yeah, do you, themselves? You have to be careful of, of historical analogies. For one thing, Democrats or Republicans lost in 1998 in the heat of impeachment. They lost the midterms. They really didn't win. Well, they won the presidency electoral vote, but they lost the, they lost the popular, popular vote in 2000. In 2000. But did. there's no doubt that Clinton's impeachment, that whole scandal hurt um, hurt Al Gore. Um, I think if the Democrats party this time had done what Bill Clinton did in 1998, which was he he first he he isolated himself from impeachment. He got up every day and talked about how he was fighting for Americans. And he let a small team on his campaign weaponize the message against Republicans. That's what I urged uh, Speaker Pelosi to do back in June in an op ed in The Washington Post. She should have had a special committee loaded up with killers, the same kind of messengers that Clinton had at the White House in 1998, who were weaponizing the case against Trump in the way that I've been talking about this morning, while the Democrats only talked about publicly about what they're doing on health care and jobs and guns and all the issues that resonate around kitchen tables. Instead, they've, they, they have done an impeachment much like the Republicans did in 1998 and much like the Democrats did in 1974, and, and those, those eras are now dead. And so what Democrats should worry about now is when this case gets to the Senate, Mitch McConnell will control the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, if Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump decide that they want this thing to go on for three months and they want to haul Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and, and every conspiracy theorist um, um, around in, in front of the TV cameras in prime time, um, and then they want to follow it around with a digital campaign, they're going to be able to do that. And, and that would worry me, um, or that does worry me, as someone who does not think that Donald Trump should be reelected. Mm. Okay, Ron Fournier, president of the Truscott Rossman PR firm. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks for Thank coming you, buddy. by. All right, up next, we're going to talk with the perfect human, retired Detroit Red Wing defenseman Nicholas Lidstrom. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. 
Nicholas Lidstrom is widely considered one of, if not the greatest, NHL defenseman of all time. He played 20 seasons for the Detroit Red Wings, including six as the team's captain. Lidstrom won four Stanley Cups, seven James Norris Memorial Trophies as the NHL's top defenseman, one Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP, and made 12 NHL All-Star Game appearances. Now he's got a new book. In his memoir, The Pursuit of Perfection, Lidstrom teens up with journalist Gunnar Nordstrom and sports columnist Bob Duff to look back on his career and his personal journey from his beginnings in Sweden to being inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2015. He joins me now here in the WDET studio. Nicholas Lidstrom, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. Talk about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a hockey player. Oh, this is going way back. Uh, As a little (laughs) kid uh, growing up in Sweden, uh, I fell in love with the game of hockey when I was seven. I wanted to, wanted to play, uh, you know, every time I had a chance to do it, I played soccer growing up in the summertime, but hockey was my was my passion. And uh, I think I decided at an early age that that's why I wanted to to try to to become a hockey player. And, and eventually when I got drafted back in 89, it, it, I got closer to, to, you know, making that dream. Yeah. Um, so what kind of players did you look up to when you were coming up? And was that what inspired you? Uh, of course, growing up in Sweden, uh, Borja Salming was a big uh, defenseman that played for uh, Toronto Maple Leafs for a lot of years. Uh, he was one of the idols I had. But also, uh, uh, growing up in the in the mid '80s, watching the Edmonton Oilers and their their teams they had with uh, <clears throat> Wayne Gretzky, uh, uh, Paul Coffey, uh, Glenn Anderson, Jari Curry, just all the, the all stars they had on their team was was really fun to watch. Yeah. Um, so, how old were you when you came to Detroit to play for the Wings? Uh, I was uh, 21 at the time when I, when I joined the Wings. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a, a pretty young age, and and you're moving to a new city uh, and and playing on a professional team. Take us back to that first season with the Wings and what that was like coming here to Detroit. Yeah, no, it was a little. Uh, Little nerve wracking to uh, to come over to to the U.S. I never mm-hmm. been in the U.S. before before I came over to sign my contract. So a uh, little bit nervous, a little bit nervous about if I'm going to make the team or not. If I'm going to play with the Wings or being sent down to the to the mine uh, to the minors. But uh, I played in a in a tournament called Canada Cup before I joined the Wings in the in the fall of '91, uh, and I played against the top players, uh, the, the Gretzkys that I mentioned, uh, other team uh, other teams like the Russians, uh, the best U.S. players. So and when I faced them, I I realized I had a chance to make it in the NHL too, but you're still there's still 60 players that battling for 23 spots, so mm-hmm. you, you still weren't sure. And and remind us of the team you joined. What was going on with the Wings uh, at that point? Uh, well, back in the early 90s, the team started to play better and better. Uh, they didn't have any uh, much playoff success, but you can see that we we had pieces to become a good team. We had Steve Eisenman, our captain and our leader. Uh, Sergey Fedorov was in his second year in the league. Uh, we had some other star players. We traded for Paul Coffey. So the, the bits and, and pieces started to fall together as a team. We uh, got Scotty Bowman as our coach uh, back in 93. So uh, having a, a coach that's won in the past, that has uh, a lot of Stanley Cup rings on his fingers, yeah. uh, that gave <laughs> us an opportunity to to move closer to to that goal. Yeah. And I remember those early and mid-90s teams and how close they seemed to be getting to the Stanley Cup Finals. And then we finally went in 95 and played the Devils and got swept. And I thought, oh, wait, we're much further away from that than than maybe we thought. Yeah, no, we had some disappointing years, uh, especially 95, playing so well in the playoffs, going all the way to the finals. Uh, I think we only lost two games re- before reaching the finals. And then we, met, we played against a much better New Jersey Devils team that were bigger and stronger and, and, and swept us in four games. So I think that gave us the, the taste of going all the way to the finals, but also knowing what it takes to, to go there and n- n- not being satisfied with that, but knowing how to take the next step. So it took us another couple of years before reaching you know, the finals back in 97 and, and going all the way and winning the cup. Yeah. What what changed between 95 and 97? Uh, was there was there kind of a reckoning with the team and, and the way it was constituted or the way it was playing that said, we've got to do something different? I think a little bit. I think we we learned a lot from, uh, like I said, playing against bigger and stronger teams. You know, we added a player like uh, Brandon Shanahan, a strong power forward that can score goals, but also 
play tough when needed. Uh, so we added bits and pieces to, to make our team even better, especially in the playoffs when, when it's a little, little tougher to, you know, to get wins. And I, we learned a lot from that 90, 95 loss as well, knowing you know, what it took to go all the way. And, and all the pieces came together in, in 97 for us to, to reach the final and, and finally winning the cup. And win, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my guest is Nicholas Lidstrom, legendary NHL defenseman who played 20 seasons for the Detroit Red Wings. He is the author of a new book, The Pursuit of Perfection. If you want to join the conversation, call and tell us what questions you have for Nicholas Lidstrom. What was your favorite season watching the Red Wings and why? And do you think the team will get back to the idea of winning Stanley Cups Again, what do you think needs to happen to get us there? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. We should also mention that uh, Nick will be at Little Caesars Arena Tuesday, December 17th, outside Portal 8 between Kid Rock's Made in Detroit and District Market. Uh from 6 to 7.15 p.m. signing copies uh, of his book. Um, I want to talk about um, being a defenseman and what role that is in hockey and what drew you to that as opposed to the other positions. Uh, you are you are known as, as I said in the open, one of the greatest defensemen of all time. Uh, it's a complicated it's a complicated role on, uh, on the ice. Uh, it is, yeah. And uh, as a little kid, you're trying all different uh, positions. The coach is, is moving you around, except goalie. I didn't play goalie, but I played center. <laughs> I played forward, just trying different positions. And uh, I, I kind of like playing uh, on the defensive side of the puck where uh, you you see all the play in front of you. Uh, you can you can still make long passes, make plays. You can be part of the offense, but you can de- you have to defend. You have to be good at, at skating, but you have to be good at defending in your own zone. And that's something that I... Appreciate it. It's something I, I like doing. Uh, it's a more uh, physical part of the. Uh, it, of the team, yeah, right? it can be. It can yeah. be. You have to be more physical. You have to play your position real well. And if you, you know, if you make a mistake, the other team usually gets a, gets a breakaway, and you rely on your goalie. So it, it, mistakes are, are magnified when you play defense. As a forward, you can you can kind of lose the puck or, or make a mistake in the offensive zone, and that's not going to hurt you. But as a defenseman, it, it's a lot. You're a lot more vulnerable. Uh, so I, I like that, but you can still be part of the offense. You can still uh, join a rush. You can still, uh, you can run a power play, be a quarterback in the power play, and, and get the shots through or set up plays. Uh, so I like the uh, combination of both, you know, playing offensive style and the defensive style. Hmm. Uh, what was it like uh, when the Red Wings welcomed the Russian Five and the grind line? I mean, that was sort of a change to the team, and uh, it, it was a different era of, of Red Wings hockey. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, Scotty Bowman. Uh, we, we added uh, Slava Fetisov, and the year after uh, Igor Larionov. And, and Scotty, being a master coach that he was, you know, he wanted to try something different. He wanted to try all the Russians together because they keep they play a different style than the North American style. They want to keep the puck within the team, not dump it in and chase it. They want to uh, pass it back to defensemen instead of you know getting rid of it. So they played a different style, and that's. I gave our team a, a different dimension. I think it was harder to play against us because we had that group of five that can play so well together. And, and no, they were communicating in a different way than, than the rest of us did, <laughs> but they were a big part of our team. And and how has hockey changed since then? Uh, that was a sort of an era of of a very distinct, I guess, time here uh, with, with the Red Wings. It's a it's it's a really different game now, isn't it? The game has changed. The game has gotten a lot faster. Uh, players are they're stronger, they're faster. It doesn't mean they're they're bigger, but they're faster. And the skill level is is much higher than it was back in the '90s. And you know, we had uh, some rule changes, uh, 2004, 2005, where clutching and grabbing and holding players up with your stick, using your stick a lot more, were allowed. And after that, you couldn't do that. Where which means you have to be a sm- so much better, stronger skater. Yeah. So that changed the game, and, and I think that's what you see in today's hockey with the, the speed and the skill of the game. Yeah, um, That physicality that they're trying to take out of the game, I think, lends itself to the speed, right? Uh, if, if you're not... If you're not holding up uh, people as much, if you're not uh, grinding on 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 people as much, then the game moves faster. Yeah, and it's it's harder to 
to play that kind of style if, if you play teams that are so skilled. They they can outskill you with their speed or with their their uh, ability to stick handle. So that makes it harder and, t- and tougher for for that tougher game to to be allowed. And I think that's why you see the game evolving of being faster and quicker. Yeah. Uh, of course, you played with uh, Steve Eiserman, uh, who was the captain of the team for, for a very long time, and now he's the general manager. Uh, uh, tell us what that was like. Uh, what were those teams like when, when you got here to Detroit and he was helping to build uh, what we would eventually have? Yeah, no, Steve, was, he was a superstar when I came to the league. You know, he was one of the, the top uh, players, probably top three or top four players in, in the NHL. And he was kind of our backbone uh, as a leader, as a captain, but also as the the guy that was would score the, the important goals or get all the points for us. So uh, I had a great time having Stevie as my captain. Uh, he was a, a tremendous leader in the locker room. He wasn't uh, wildly outspoken. He was more kind of a quiet and, and a little bit reserved. But he when he said something, and he said it at the right time, and he said the right things, and then he could go out there and back it up. He could he would elevate his game when the games got into the playoffs or when he reached. Uh, important uh, parts of games Stevie would you know, elevate his game to become even better yeah. uh, so he was he was a great role model for me to to try to follow his footsteps when yeah, I, became I was going to ask I mean uh, you you eventually become the captain you do that for six seasons uh, talk about that transition from player to captain and what that that looks like and feels like yeah the, the responsibility gets a little bigger you know you're uh more involved with with uh, or you're talking a lot more to the coaching staff and, and on different scenarios whether it's traveling or, or the lineup or how we're playing as a team so your your responsibilities gets a lot higher but I think being so close having been close to Steve for so many years and, and watching him deal with it and how he handled it and and, and just having a couple of discussions with him when I first uh, got the captaincy was, was really helpful for me. Because uh, uh, he w- he was that role model for me when I w- became captain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about your feelings about the city of Detroit? I mean, you you spent twenty seasons with uh, the Red Wings. That's a very long time. Uh, do you think of Detroit as home uh, now, or do you still think of Sweden as your home? I I, I do feel Detroit is my home away from home. Uh, even though I'm from Sweden, mm-hmm. I I I lived here in. in in uh, the state of Michigan and in, in the Detroit area for 20 seasons and 20 years. And I, I fell in love with the area. We have a lot of friends outside of hockey with me and my wife and our kids. And it's always fun coming back here and, and visiting with friends and old teammates. And so I, I treat this as my home away from home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little about uh, the book, uh, The Pursuit of Perfection. I, I always ask uh, people about the titles of their book, where they got it from and what, what it means to them. Uh, where did you come up with that? Uh, well, it, back uh, a long time ago, some yeah. of my teammates uh, called me the perfect, <laughs> the perfect, you, human, the perfect right? human, which I kind of still giggles about and I, I kind of shrug my shoulders that's about a it. Lot of, that's a lot of burden to place on someone, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's uh, two of the, the funny guys in our locker room, Chris Draper and Chris Oscar, that kind of came up with that. And, uh, uh, I, I kind of giggle at it, but that's, you know, we're looking looking for a title and and uh, my co-authors were kind of leaning towards something like that. And it's, they thought it was fitting. And, and after uh, some persuasion, they, they, I decided to, you know, we, we can go with that. But <laughs> you it's, could embrace it's, it. Yeah. I, I'm still kind of having a little fun with that, uh, that nickname they gave me back in the day. Yeah. But, but I mean, if you look at your career and all of the things you accomplished, I mean, nobody is perfect, of course. But I mean, it it really is as close to to a perfect a perfected career, I guess, as as you could come up with. I tried when I was playing. I tried to to keep my uh, my level of play as high as possible. You know, you're gonna have your ups and downs. You're when you're feeling great, you're playing great, and then you're you're gonna have your dips when you're not uh, doing as well as you can. I tried to, to kind of get rid of the the low dips and play as, as strong as I could all the time, and and I took a lot of pride in doing that too. And I think. Uh, no, that's that's kind of part of what what they were thinking of when I, they came up with that nickname. But that's that's one of the things I, I looked at when I was still when I was active playing, trying to, to not have too many dips and, and, yeah. and playing you know poorly. Consistency is the thing that yes. I think is hardest yes. in anything that you're doing, right? To 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 do it every day and do it at the highest uh, at the highest level. Uh, can you can you remember times when that was harder than at other times when it was harder? To, to keep at it and to, to, to keep the play at the level that that you expected of yourself? 
Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I, I felt that it's whether you're you're tired or you're you're a little banged up, you're you're a uh, little bit hurt when you're playing. You're still playing, but you, you can feel your the bumps and bruises on your body, and still trying to be that consistent player was hard sometimes. And me as an offensive defenseman, that was part of the power play. If you weren't producing, you also felt that pressure of. Oh, the power play is not doing as well as you, you'd like to, and, and you, you're not getting the points. So you can feel that pressure as well. But uh, the, that consistency is something I try to, to do all every day. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask you about Mike Babcock, uh, who was the coach here for, for many years. And he's taking some heat right now uh, after Johan Franzen accused him of being, quote, the worst person I have ever met. He said he was verbally, verbally abusive as a coach. Um, what's your reaction to all of that, and what was your own experience with Babcock as coach? Uh, I feel for Johan when I when I heard that, when I uh, read that story, and that's something I wasn't aware of. That's something that came up, uh, you know, much later. Uh, but uh, Mike Babcock was a demanding coach. He demanded a lot from his his players. Uh, he had his teams prepared. He he uh, he knew what to put in front of the players every day to for the team to be successful but he could be demanding too and sometimes when you're when you get into the grind of, of playing and working hard every day it, it gets sometimes tired on your body and on your mind and he was he was more of a demanding coach that he, he demanded a lot from his players mm. uh, what would you say is the contrast between someone like Mike Babcock for instance and Scotty Bowman another another coach that you had here in Detroit, uh, were they really different in the way they approached leading the team? A little bit different. I think Babcock was more, he was more hands-on where he, uh, he wanted control of, of whether it's special teams or uh, uh, how the team's doing defensively or offensively. He was hands-on on everything. Whereas Scotty was more uh, relying on his assistant coaches. He would have one one coach uh, work the power play and the other work the, the penalty killing and kind of give them the, the responsibility of, of this is this is your job. So uh, Scotty was more of a overseeing everything, whereas I think Babcock was more hands-on on everything. And uh, I think Scotty had more, he was he was an older coach. Mm-hmm. He kept his distance a little bit more to the players than than what Mike did. And, and that's some of the, the differences that I saw. Yeah. Uh, of course, right now uh, the team is not in great shape. They're <laughs> not doing very well. I wonder. I wonder what it's like for you to watch that uh, the, the the struggle. And of course, they're rebuilding. I have no doubt, really, that they will get back to you know that level of of Stanley Cup excellence that we've kind of come to expect here. But but talk about h- how you see that and how hard it is maybe to watch that team struggle. Uh, it's difficult when you see the, the players and the, the, team, uh, the team struggle. Uh, you're, the team has, has set such a high standard over the last two decades that people expect them to be there every season, to be, in the, be a top team, to make the playoffs and, and be a contender. And after 25 seasons, I think, of making the playoffs, uh, you know, that rebuild finally came to the wings too, that they were yeah. looking to, to do a rebuild. You couldn't... Uh, uh, go out and sign free agents the way they've done in the past, and it, it made it more difficult to uh, to develop players as well. So that's I think that's where we're at today. The team is rebuilding. Uh, the young players are getting an opportunity to play a lot, which which they need to be successful down the road. But uh, it's some growing pains when when you have to go through that. Yeah. Uh, do you have confidence in your former teammate uh, as the general manager that you'll be able to? Pull it together. I do. I, I think uh, Stevie Eisman did a great job down in Tampa, where uh, you know he he went there in, in 2010 and he took them all the way to the finals, and he was able to to assemble that team and have a lot of success with that team. And I, I'm I'm sure Stevie will do the same thing with, with the Red Wings again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have some questions from folks on social media. Uh, what was your hardest season with the Wings? What was the season that that you just couldn't wait to be over? Uh, some of the tough seasons, uh, well, some of the, the later seasons in my career, we, uh, you know, we went to the finals in 2008 and won the cup, went to the finals in, in 09 and lost uh, in the finals in game seven at mm-hmm. home, which is still hurting a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I remember that game. But the season after that was, you know, we started our regular season in Sweden, actually played two regular season games in Sweden. You have to travel all the way over there and play and then come back and uh, having gone to the finals two years in a row, it, it takes its toll on, on your body. And then starting that third season, that uh, 09 2010 season, was was hard. And we weren't playing as good as we've had in the past. And we were 
we made the playoffs, but it was a struggle the whole season to to make the playoffs, and that that season is, is was a tough one. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question is: If you weren't a hockey player, what would you have done? I would imagine that's really hard to think of as as long as you spent doing it and as successful as you were at it. Yeah, well, as a sixteen year old, I moved away from home to uh, to go and play hockey and study at the same time. So I study uh, uh, to become an engineer, hmm. and uh, after four years of school, and I did my military service in, in Sweden for a year. The wings came with a contract, so I kind of left my, my all my studies aside, and I wanted to to follow my dream and become an NHL player. So I uh, I, I left that engineering career to the side, and and uh, that probably would have been something I would have pursued if I didn't didn't become a right. hockey player. No, that would be really interesting. Do you ever think of maybe going back to that? Uh, I kind of lost. It's been in, a long time. Yeah, right? <laughs> I kind of lost interest in 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 that part uh, of of uh, the business uh, as well. But uh, at the time when I was sixteen and I had to to look at the profession, that's something I looked at because I, I enjoyed you know what I did in school. Mm, wow. Uh, what's the biggest difference between playing in Europe and playing here? I would say the biggest difference is the the ice surface. The hockey rinks in in Europe and in international hockey is a lot bigger. The ice surface is. Uh, 15 feet wider, which makes it, you have more room with a puck, mm-hmm. you have more time with a puck, and then you come to an NHL-sized rink, it, everything closes up on you a lot quicker. Players are on you quicker, you have to make quicker decisions. But after having played on both the European and NHL-sized rinks, I prefer NHL-sized rinks. It's a lot more fun playing in them. You yeah. you, you have more scoring chances, the, the game, the intensity of the game is higher, so, and I, I enjoy that more than, than playing on bigger rinks. Yeah. Okay, Nicholas Lidstrom, legendary NHL defenseman who played 20 seasons for our Detroit Red Wings. It was really great to have you here. Thanks for coming by. All right, thank you. And a reminder that uh, Nicholas will be at Little Caesars Arena outside Portal 8 between Kid Rock's Made in Detroit and District Market from 6 to 7.15 p.m. on Tuesday, December 17th, signing his book. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.